This is Steve Nixon with FreeJazzLessons.com, and you are listening to the Behind the Note podcast with Chris Davis. You're listening to Behind the Note podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show was made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, everybody. Thank you for pressing play today. It's my pleasure to tell you that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash behind the note. Over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or any other kind of MP3 player. Hi, everybody. Thank you for pressing play today. And, of course, we have a great episode for you. Today is episode number 24, if I am not mistaken. I hope that is correct. I'm going to begin this podcast by reading a couple more iTunes reviews for you because I'm just thankful for the people that take the time out of their busy day to to give feedback to the show on the iTunes platform because that helps us be visible. And it's great. That's what we as podcasters need we need your feedback recorded on on the on the platform in the review section so i'm going to read just two today i'm only going to read two thank you because i have more than that but uh the first one is by nick at five minutes with dad and he called the title important topic and he says it's so sad that so many musicians move away from their music to, quote unquote, put food on the table. Talking about how to make money without giving up the music is so important to keep the best and most passionate musicians connected. Great stuff. Thank you, Nick, for that review. And you're very accurate because this is this is a truth that we know about. All of us as musicians know about it. Many of us end up making the decision to to go ahead and pursue what we love, which is to perform or to write or to do that musical activity or take the full time job to, as you say, put food on the table and, and pay the bills. And this is a very important topic. And we're going to actually dive further into this. I, I uh, recently put an email out to the people on my email list. And if you're not on my email list, uh, please sign up behindthenote.com. And if you do, you'll get a gift, which is three keys to a successful music career. So I put out an, an invitation for the people on my list to answer the question, what are you struggling with? And this is a topic that came up many times. So we're going to talk about this um, more and more over the course of the show and hopefully give some people some answers. By the way, if you would like to answer that question, excuse me, <clears throat> if you would like to answer that question, please do go to behindthenote.com and you can actually leave me a voicemail. There's an option on, on the right side margin to send a voicemail. Tell me what you're struggling with and we'll address We'll address that right here on the show or in the form of a blog or we'll address it in some way. So I didn't really mean to get 
into this topic uh, right away on the show, but it's important. This is something that all of us have dealt with or are dealing with. And one thing I, I believe is why do you need to make a decision either or? Can you have both at the same time? I really believe that you can, okay? Uh, however, there are times when you might want to choose either or because maybe you feel as though you can give 100% to either one or the other. You don't want to be divided. So we're going to dive more into this topic in the future. All right. So one more one more review. A-plus podcast for musicians. And this one is left by Giselle. Oh, my goodness, Giselle. Your last name. I don't want to mess it up. Um Oliveria, and I hope that's correct. And she says, wow, this podcast is amazing. <laughs> awesome content and practical advice for musicians. A must listen. Thank you for the kind review. And, and both of those were five-star ratings. I appreciate it. And uh, the, the, the part that I like about that is she said practical advice. And that's the important part because this, uh, I, my goal is to make it practical for you. And the next part is to take it from you hearing to putting things into practice. So I hope that's actually going on. Uh, we're early right now in, in the episodes. This is only episode number 24. But over time, I hope to get some, some feedback from you, some testimonials saying, that you heard the show and you put some things in practice and now you're doing better because of it. I'm waiting for that day. I know we're just starting, so it's going to take some time. But please let me know if we if we're able to help you in that way. So let me introduce to you today's guest. We have a treat for you today because our guest today is one of the youngest instructors at Boston's Berklee College of Music. And he's rapidly making a name for himself in the world of jazz violin and mandolin. His music career has led him to perform in China, Germany, the UK, and many other countries. His sophomore album is called The Tipping Point and is available for sale right now. It's my pleasure to introduce to you today, Mr. Jason Anik. Thank you, Jason, so much for joining us on the show today. It's good to be here. Now, I want to want to get right into the podcast by asking you how you got into playing music in the first place. Um, well, I started off playing the violin when I was about five years old. My my dad, who is a great musician, uh, not full time, just part time, but uh, has had bands his whole life, and it's been, he's been playing. Uh, he got he got me uh, into playing violin and started me off with uh, doing classical and uh, some like traditional fiddle music. And uh, I took it from there. And uh, so it all started when I was about five, which is uh, pretty young. Now, I know that you also play the mandolin. When did you pick up that instrument? Yeah, so the, the lineage of like the instrumentation, I also play guitar. And I picked up guitar when I was about 12 or 13. And then started playing the mandolin, which is kind of a, in a way, a fusion 
of the two instruments. It's got the fretboard, fingerboard of a violin, and it's got the frets and the, you know, like like picking like a guitar. So it kind of was it was pretty natural. And I was about sixteen when I started playing mandolin. Wow. So you, already you taught me something because I never really paid attention to that instrument. So I, it's pretty interesting to know that it has the the board of the violin. It so, does. Yeah. So that's that seems like a an easy transition. It's certainly easier transition. Yeah. I mean, because it's it's a, a familiar territory of sorts. And then since I had been playing guitar and understood uh, chords and understood uh, picking, which is the subtlety of uh playing guitar i would that was able to transfer that to the mandolin as well so within a year or two i was feeling pretty comfortable but i for for a jazz setting with the mandolin what i like to do um is uh play i have a five string electric it's like a mini arch top so it's a single string electric mandolin which is a pretty unique instrument but that gives a nice almost guitar-esque tone but uh, it, it's nice and warm, and it's got the sustain, and it works nice in a jazz setting. Oh, I see. So I want to know, uh, at what point did you begin to switch and become serious about your music? I always loved playing music, uh, you know, ever since I was a young kid. I mean, didn't always love practicing, which is typical, but I did it, and I had fun playing. I had fun playing with my dad. We'd write music together. I had fun playing with friends I'd met. But I think it was about when I was maybe fifteen or sixteen. Um, I was getting I was getting good, but I, I was like really falling. I was starting to compose music, and it was becoming real personal. And then at that point, then I couldn't t- I put couldn't put it down, and I was practicing five six hours a day and just playing as much as I could. And that's also when I started to get into jazz as well. And uh, particularly jazz violin, and uh, I was really I was listening to a lot of Charlie Parker, a lot of uh, Sonny Rollins, Sonny Stitt, a lot of sax players and Cannonball Adderley, um, and just like all the, the 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 classic jazz musicians. And I was trying to transfer that to the violin. And at the time, I hadn't met too many violinists who I heard playing the language on the instrument, and I, I got excited about that. And so I was trying to kind of find my voice within that and so you know I really fell in love with it and and so was still you know trying to find my way and discover you know how I'd make a career out of it through college and everything but I would say I was about 15 16 when I I really wanted to to play and that's what I wanted to do and it wasn't of course later till I I figured out all the right strategies business-wise and meeting the right people to make it a reality but the the i laid the groundwork around that time well you so you already said some pretty important things that i wanted to talk about but before we get into the business part of the music i want to know i want to know who did you first uh learn about as far as jazz violin players because that's not really popular in jazz. So who did you find first? Who did you, who did you discover? Of course, uh, Stefan Grappelli. My dad was a big fan of him. And I actually got to meet him when I was at uh, when I was around 11 years old. I got to uh, see Stefan Grappelli perform at uh, one of his last shows. He was about 88 or something. And this was around uh, in uh, Worcester, Mass. Because I grew up around, uh, around uh, 
in that area. And so uh, I got to see him perform. I got to meet him. And uh, my dad had a lot of Grappelli records around and also uh, Joe Venuti. So some of the early violinists. And then also uh, my dad had uh, records of uh, Jean-Luc Ponty and um, Didier Lockwood, who's a more contemporary jazz violinist from France, fantastic player. And also a uh, more gypsy player, uh, Florin Nicolescu. So I think it was a combination because this this was pre-YouTube and Spotify. So I was still kind of on the other side of the curve where music, you had to find it through a record. You know, you couldn't find everything wasn't available. But I was lucky enough that my my dad was a big fan of of, uh, jazz violin and, uh, you know, found some more obscure things, more obscure records that you can't find in any store. And he traveled a lot to, to France. And he would actually, because he writes for a couple different magazines, he would video all these festivals throughout Europe. And he'd get to see all these uh, amazing uh, jazz violinists throughout Europe um, that maybe have don't even have records you can find. So I, I had a unique upbringing in that regards where I got access to things that no one else could hear. Wow, I see that. That really worked out to your advantage, too, I could tell. When did you decide to become a professional? And then tell us how you actually made that happen for yourself. Before I went to uh, the Hart Conservatory um, in Connecticut, I, uh, you know, we're we're still just like trying to figure it all out. What am I going to do? And I ended up doing a uh, dual major with um, acoustical engineering and music. So I, I was able to study jazz and classical violin at the conservatory, but also take some other classes at, at the University of Hartford um, so that I'd have a kind of a more broad, you know, you know, have a, a bigger palette of things. So I was learning about acoustics and some recording stuff and and uh, yeah, I still use that stuff, but of course, I ended up doing the music route. But even even throughout college, you know, it's just I was just making sure that just in case, you know, I needed to do this or that, I could I could have some options. But of course, I always wanted to pursue music, and I was doing everything I could, making all the connections in college, and going to festivals, going to different music camps, and uh, meeting tons of tons of different musicians. And actually, uh, you know, I saw a niche. Uh, so I mentioned Stefan Grappelli. Well, Stefan Grappelli and Django Reinhardt uh, started the style of gypsy jazz, which was the fusion. It's kind of the French style of jazz, which they took the, the, the traditional gypsy music and combined it with like the Louis Armstrong and the swing era. Um, and so that music... If when you think about like a gypsy jazz group, it's like guitar and violin are at the center of that. Like you mentioned before, it's like when you think jazz violin, or when you think jazz, like I want to like if somebody's like I want to start a jazz group, violin's not the first thing they're gonna think about. They want to you know trumpet, sax, drums, bass. So it's not a typical instrument in the the more traditional jazz setting. But I found this niche with gypsy swing where violin was at the forefront. So I really made a lot of connections of musicians throughout Europe and throughout the U.S. who play this more niche style. 
and uh, kind of rose to the top in that field in the U.S. And so that was a, a I mean, I also love playing that style of music, but it served as a, a great tool to uh, for um, marketability as well to, to, to present, to kind of be a top in that style. Okay, so I want to know, how did you go about meeting these people? Yeah, how did you do that? What, what was your method? Um, within the within the, the the gypsy jazz world, um, uh, I was I was going to various camps. So there was like, for example, there's a camp out in Northampton, Mass. That's called Django in June, where all a lot of the top European players of this style and uh, people around the U.S. come and teach. And so I had an opportunity to to meet them and uh, jam with them. And they got to hear me play and really liked my playing. And, you know, so I was on a lot of their radars. And these are guys who tour and gig constantly. They're professional musicians playing this music. And uh, and again, since violin is like, you know, every guitar player out there that plays this style wants to have a violinist as a sideman. So I started to get some uh, calls from some of those the people who were teaching at these camps and uh, these great great players, uh, because I I was really no knew this style and what I did was I fused more of the jazz side of it because uh, I was more of a bebop straight ahead player, but still had the sound of that they were looking for for the gypsy style when I could turn it on, and uh, so. Like, for example, I got an opportunity to play up at Montreal Jazz Festival with uh, a great guitar player named Robin Nolan. And then he recommended me to another great guitar player named John Jorgensen. And uh, I guess my big break then was uh, right out of college, I was asked to play with John Jorgensen, who was doing... He's like, you want to play with my band? It's about 160 shows a year. You know, it's this pay. Um, and so I was right out of college, and it was the perfect segue into a touring musician. And so I got to play all over Europe and China and Canada and all over the U.S. And so all the connections I made led me to meet the right person at the right time, that being uh, the John Jorgensen. And so I, and uh, also he was looking for a new violin player right when I was – graduating so it you know it's a combination of making the right connections but also right place right time but again you know you hear that saying a lot but you gotta put yourself in the right place as well that that's so true and i noticed something you don't really hear you, you said something important a few minutes ago you don't really hear of people seeking out camps to make connections with people but that's just as good a place as any Oh yeah, it's a great place, and uh, you know, I, I I also would go to. Uh, there's a couple string camps out there, so that's like camps specifically for string players, and these are string non classical string players looking to improvise. And so that was I used to go to those as well, and that was a great net way to network, along with uh, a great way to learn. And that's actually where I met one of my jazz violin mentors, Christian House who's uh, from Columbus area, amazing jazz violinist who who was like really, you know, stretching out on the instrument and plays changes and, and uh, you know, really 
gets like the jazz language on the instrument. So I spent a lot of time with him and he's somebody I met through the camps and uh, he, he gave me a lot of hookups after he heard me play and after we, we made a, we have a relationship and uh, yeah, so the, the, the camps are great. And you know, you, you do hear a bit about like, there's like the jazz ahead, Betty Carter jazz ahead camp or, or like uh, competitions like the Thelonious Monk competition, all these things you know, whatever you can do to get your name out there and, and put put yourself out there is so important. This is very true. I wanted to ask you also, are you performing primarily as a sideman or do you also lead your own group? I do both, yeah. So I, I actually have two groups that I started. One that it kind of fuses uh, more like bebop and straight ahead with, with the gypsy jazz quintet style called Rhythm Future Quartet. Um, and that group, we just got off of a, a like a two week tour um, throughout throughout New England and East Coast. And that group has been has been picking up and playing a lot. Again, it's a it's a uh, it's got a nice niche. It's you know people people really enjoy it across the board. So not just jazz fans, people you know. So it's uh it's been doing well. And then I have my other project that uh, was. You know the the catalyst of that project was uh, my new album Tipping Point, which features more of my mandolin and vi- you know violin and a lot of my composing, and is a little more on the modern and contemporary side of jazz. I've been playing a lot of great jazz clubs with that band as well, so uh, it's, it's great to have a couple different projects, especially if you have different things to say musically. Jason, I'm going to take the time right now to thank our sponsor. For you, the listeners of Behind the Note Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can get titles like Six Figure Musician, The Jazz Standards, and Making Music Your Business. These titles, along with 150,000 others, are available right now for download. To download your free audiobook today, Go to audibletrial.com slash behind the note. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash behind the note for your free audiobook. Okay, I wanna I wanna tap in a little bit uh on the band leading portion of your career and tell us what have you discovered to work for you? How how do you what do you do to keep your group performing? I want to, I want people to be able to leave with maybe some pointers that they feel like they can put into practice right away. So what have you found to work for you? Um well one thing from the not not the playing side of things is is just always don't forget the power of personality. So that being, you know, you got to have a strong personality cuz these people are paying to see you and they want to, you know, feel like they can connect with you personally not just musically. Um, having a good, p- performing great music is a given. You got to do that if you want sustainability and you want the venue to have you back. But the ability to, you know, call the venue and make them be like, believe in your band, that they want to book you, or whether it's, uh, you know, after the show, you you meet, meet, meet and greet the people and make a personal connection and, uh, you know they they feel 
you know, like they they can uh, they feel connected to you, and so they'll they'll want to come back to you. So and then and then the personality of like uh, being a band leader, inspiring people to play their best, and um, you know, inspiring them, and, and just like having a, a good time on the road. You know, everyone, you know, you're on the road a lot, so so you. And what I mean by on the road is like in the van or in the hotels or this and that. The non-musical side of things is. You gotta be a good hang, and you gotta really, you know, make the most of everything. So there's gonna be ups and downs, but you gotta stay positive, and especially as the band leader, you can't be negative. Otherwise, it's gonna be it's gonna affect the music, and it's gonna be uninspiring. So you know, you, you, I just keep keep the uh, morale high and uh, on and off the bandstand, and make sure that I try to connect with every venue owner. And anyone who, you know, comes to the show is a, that's a, that's a new fan. So you got to connect with them. So that's really good advice. How, but how do you, how do you approach a cold target, I guess, for lack of a better term? So if you have your eyes on this, on a specific venue, how, how have you been uh, successfully been able to get in? Um, well, definitely. Uh, your your bio is so important. So, you know, I've I've played with, especially like if I've played at the venue as a sideman with say like John Jorgensen because we played a lot of great concerts and theaters all around U.S. And so now with my own projects, I'll, I'll call and say, oh, you know, I've played there with John Jorgensen quintet. I have my this new group, and. Um, you know, whether it's a, like an email or a call, you know, the thing about emails that I noticed uh, is that a lot of times they don't get, they get shuffled around because you got to figure good, good um, venues are getting thousands of emails a day from bands that want to play there. So it's got to somehow stand out or you just got to, you got to email a bunch. You got to like, you got to figure that they're not going to see like two or three of your emails. But you also don't want to be annoying about it too. You know, you don't want to just be obsessive. But you sometimes, if you just do like a follow up, you know, every other week or something, and then you know, because a lot of venues don't give a number that you can call. Otherwise, they would get calls all the time. But if they do, if you do, if I can call them, and let's say it's a venue I haven't played before, or they haven't heard of anyone I've played with. I just have to make them believe that it's going to be a good project, and it doesn't always work. You know, I've I've like uh, I'm doing a Midwest tour come September, and it, I'm happy it's it's pieced together. We're doing uh, like twelve shows in a row, and uh, but I, it's a lot of work, and there was a lot of uh, shuffling things around, and and venues that weren't interested, and then venues that were interested but had no availability. So it's 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 so it can be a lot of work and I do have some I have some people that help me do some booking. It's not a booking agency, but I got a couple different people in different locations who uh, help out with certain things. So that that's good too. But uh, you know we're we're on track to uh, hopefully get a booking agent within the year. But uh, yeah, putting in all the time, making sure that to get get the groups out there. So it's, but you know, you gotta, you gotta make sure that they believe that this is going to be a killer show, especially if you've never played in the area 
and uh, the venue never heard of you. It's like, why should we book you? You know, it's like. Right, because they have too much to lose to hire a band that's not good. Exactly. And uh, you actually said something very valuable, valuable. And maybe a lot of us have experienced this. But personally, I have also found things to be a little easier. When you tell the club owner or, or whoever's booking for the club or, or whatever the venue is, it doesn't have to be a club. But if you can say, I have played with fill in the blank, they sometimes pay more attention to that. And what I've done in the past was I, I filled in the blank with the name of someone who has performed at their venue because they personally know that person. So they mm-hmm. feel a little more open to to at least listening to me so yeah yeah that's that, that's a big part of it is the uh you know having your the resume and so that's where playing as a side man with various artists is so important yes yeah, very true so also you is it true that you work at, at berkeley college of music yeah i've been teaching at berkeley for about three years now what's your role there uh, I'm a violin instructor, and I, I teach in one. I teach an ensemble. Man, that's really cool. I think that's like I, the ideal situation for most musicians who who prefer to perform. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I feel very lucky to have the balance of uh, you know, t- and and so a lot of people will balance teaching and playing, but. But to be able to teach at an institution like Berkeley and all the connections and people I'm meeting there and and a high level of students, so I'm not teaching people how to hold their instrument. Right. I, I get to like really dig into some uh, some good good aspects of music. Okay, tell us first of all, how did you get this position? Was this something you sought out, or did someone reach out to you because of your reputation? How how did that come about for you? I mean, I it's kind of a combination of both. I was putting the energy out there, and I. Uh, uh, I was making the scene in Boston, so I was meeting a lot of the the teachers in the string department. So, like at Berkeley, there's like the guitar department, string department, voice. They're they're separated by departments, and so I, through different gigs locally, was was meeting a lot of the players in the string department, and uh, they were so I was on their radar, and they really liked my playing. They they liked liked me personally and um the and I was I was starting to do a lot of workshops around the country with my touring and so I was building up a nice uh resume of teaching as well I I had an op- an opportunity came up where I could teach at their summer program so they do a Berkeley summer program for high schoolers but but I didn't really realize but it was it was kind of an audition. I was about to say that. That was really your audition for the program. That's it true. was, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it's a little less higher, a little less risk. It's just the summer. And if it didn't work out, they could say, you know, thank you and goodbye. But luckily, you know, I gave it my all, which I do for everything I do. And the students all had really good feedback. And, and also it paired up with uh, an, a growth in the program. So there was a few new hires that year who we've all been there for the past three years and uh it's been it's been it's been great. I've been really enjoying it and you know, I, I I'm there most of the semester. So I te- I just teach Tuesday and Wednesday. I just do two like long days there and uh yeah, I have the rest of the week open to gig. 
Man, that is so cool. I, I surely was about to ask how you how you balance the performing and the teaching, but I see it really works out in your favor that way. Yeah, and you know, a lot of the teachers at Berkeley are performant performers and and tour. You know, the key though is that you make sure the students are getting everything and you make up lessons when you can and you know, you, it's not like I'm going to be doing month tours during the sem- semester or anything, but a week here and there, as long as I make them up, that's totally fine. Jason, you've really been great. Thanks for sharing with us. You've really given us some some really good things to consider here. So yeah. I want to ask you um, maybe only a couple more questions. Uh, so sure. Behind the Note is really about advice for a successful music career. I try to give that every episode if I can, and it's totally based on your experiences. So with that in mind, is there a parting piece of advice that you would like to leave with everyone? You got to work as hard as you can, and but have fun with it at the same time because, you know, your love and and your that will translate to people wanting to play with you more. And, um, you know, having the right attitude, a positive attitude throughout the whole thing, you know, don't get down. Like, so I remember... The, the the thing that Christian House, my mentor, said was it's the highest highs and the lowest lows, basically meaning, you know, it's like going to be so rewarding at times. And then sometimes you're just going to feel like, not you know, you can't do it and you want to give up and uh, it's so hard. But, you know, focus on the, 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 the fact that you can make a living playing music and you're sharing music with people and how rewarding that is. So, uh, yeah, I mean, best of luck to everybody. Yeah, thank you so much, Jason. And how can people contact you if they if they would like to? People can contact me through my website. There's a contact form that's just www.jasonanick.com. A N I C K. That's some people do it with two ends, but just one end. So have people uh, people can reach out. I'm always down to answer questions. And Tipping Point, uh, the new CD, is available on iTunes and uh, streaming on Spotify. Yeah, yeah. Right right on. Thanks a lot, Jason. Really appreciate you today. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You bet. That was our talk with Mr. Jason Anik, and thank you so much for sticking around this long. I want to tell you something, and you know I always like to recap at this part of the show, so please listen to me here. I was talking to my father just the other day about this. My father is a minister, and he has been since before I was born. And I had this question on my mind, so I asked him, and I said, how is it that every week, we're talking about pastors of of churches, so how, and and over the years, so over 30 years and, and more and beyond, how is it that every single week you can have a pastor of a church come up and preach a sermon and it's new, it's fresh each and every week? How, how is that? Because the scriptures don't change. The Bible doesn't change. It's, it's been written, for example. So, so where is 30 years of, of content coming from? And, you know, sometimes when you <laughs> sometimes when you talk to people, and this was the case in this instance, when you're asking a question, you end up answering your own question. So that's what happened here. And my dad actually didn't say anything except for that's right. 
But but the thing is, the scriptures don't change. Uh, but the people change. Right. So the, the thing is that the truth is the truth. It doesn't ever change. That's why it's the truth. So and sometimes things are, are worth repeating until the people get it, until the people understand, until the people start to make the changes that need to be made. So I said all that to say that uh, right here, you know, we're only 24 episodes in, but what what are the tips? What are the pointers that you're taking away here? Are you actually putting them into practice? So, I mean, that's something that you really need to ask yourself and, and answer honestly. Um, so today, Jason made some very good points, some good references. However, we're only 24 episodes in, and it's not anything uh, different because it's the truth. So, at, you know, when you go back and you listen to the early episodes, uh, we started with Elaine Dane, then we went to uh, George... Uh, we went to uh, James Brandon Lewis and George Colligan and Rufus Reed, who's a legend. And and even recently, we talked to Mr. Rodney Whitaker. And all of these guys together, they're, they're telling you guys the same point. And, and the tips, you, you need a mentor. Uh, the first person, I think, to mention that, I think, might have been Ulysses Owens Jr. But whoever mentioned it first doesn't matter. But it's the truth. And so that's why you're getting the same things. You need a mentor. You need to be visible. You need to make yourself seen in public. Of course, having a a good sound and being good at your craft is a given. That's a prerequisite to to what we're talking about here. And 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 putting in the diligent work to make your dream become reality. And for for Jason, I think he was he was used as a great reminder. It's kind of like a band director who's at the school day in and day out, teaching his students certain concepts. And because the students are so familiar with the teacher, they kind of get used to him or her and they don't do their best. They might casually work on certain things. And then the teacher bring in a guest and the guest will say the exact same thing that the teacher has been preaching for a year and then things begin to click so uh i said all that to say i i I really hope this is uh worth it for you i hope i hope that this is making a connection to you i hope that you're starting to see things from a different perspective perhaps in a way that motivates you to to pursue and, and work toward whatever it is that's been on your heart to to accomplish because in my opinion, and it's really not that far out of reach. So, all right, I'm going to stop right there. This is getting kind of long. But I, I hope you guys feel my, my passion and um, how serious I am about this. So, just want to say thank you again to Jason for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. And that's all for today. And we'll see you in the next episode. God bless you.